Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have been redeemed by the blood of your precious Son. We thank you that your love has lifted us, not just encouraged us, but has lifted us from the pit of hell and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. That your love has not just saved us from hell, but your love has caused us to be adopted as sons and as daughters. And we thank you today, Father, for the overwhelming, surpassing love of God that passes understanding. And Father, today we ask that you do that, that you strengthen us by your Spirit in our inner man, that Christ may be formed in us by faith, that being rooted and grounded in your love for us, that we may come to know with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes human understanding. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. Be praise and glory unto God. Amen Amen. and amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to begin to bring this to a close, this phase of, of this whole series we're talking about. Don't turn there, but in John 15, we started there where Jesus told His disciples at the very end of His time with them physically on this earth before He was, went to the cross and was raised from the dead to, and ascended into heaven, He gave them some last instructions. And one of the things we saw in John 15 is he said, you need to understand this. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. So we've been talking about the fact that God chose you and what that means. I'm not going to go back over all of that again because we've gone over it a number of times. But it means out of a group of, of other alternatives, he chose you. And then we went to Matthew chapter 4, and that's where we're going to start today again. Because this is how Jesus chose his disciples. And there's some very powerful things that we saw in there. We'll go in verse 18. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This is his calling them. In John 15, he said, You didn't choose me, I chose you. Now we're seeing back in the beginning, how he chose them and what was involved in that choosing because it's the same things that are involved in his choosing you and his choosing me. Notice what he says here. He said, follow me. That's his calling. That's his choosing of you. Follow me. And we spent some time talking about what it means to follow. I had Brendan Lawler come up here, and, and I just had him follow me. We walked all over the place. And, and, and we've got a, a practical, visual example of the simplicity of what it means to follow somebody. In order to do that, he had to keep his eyes on me. He couldn't be distracted. In fact, I had him distracted by his wife and by Pastor Mike, whoever it was that I had him distracted by. And when he got his eyes on them and paying attention to what they were doing, he, got out of, he lost his track of where I was. The good news is he could catch up. And the lesson in that is what we're called to do, what God has called you to do, Jesus has called you to do, is to follow him. It's that simple. God's not complicated. He's profound, but he's not complicated. It's simply follow him. And Satan's device, in many cases, is to make the simple things of God so complicated we either get lost in them or we get overwhelmed by them and think, I can't do that. But with, its, with Jesus, it's so simple. He just said, you, follow me. Notice he came to them personally. The record of it has their name in there. He came to Andrew and he came to Peter. We go over further. He went to James and John and did the same thing. He said, come, follow me. The next thing we saw about following was they immediately dropped their nets. And over in James and John, they left their father also. Elsewhere in, in, the, in the Gospels, they said, we left everything. So we've seen that, that following means I've got to let go of what I have 
in order to follow Him. And we've acted that out here. I'm not going to go back over that. That you can't, he, they couldn't keep their nets and follow Him because their nets were at the shore of Galilee and He was taking them somewhere else. So they had to be willing to let go of what they treasured, what they valued, what was their source of livelihood. They had to be willing to let go of everything in order to follow Him because you can't follow Him and hold on to where you were. And some of us are in an awkward position of trying to do both. We're trying to hold on to where we were and things that have been of value to us before. That may be relationships with people. It may be things in your life. It can be simple things. Whatever it is for you. But then last time what we talked about is the more subtle thing that gets in our way of following Him. And that's what we think of ourselves or more importantly, what we want others to think of ourselves, our self-image. And it's not that we're not to think well of ourselves. It's not that we're supposed to think terribly or poorly of ourselves. What it means is we're not supposed to treasure that as our identity, our source of value, and our security. Because here's the problem with that. You can't, and Paul, we talked about, we'll see this before we finish today. In Proverbs, it says in Proverbs 29, 25, because, go back a second. Because when I'm trying to hold on to how everybody sees me, and I'm worried about my reputation, and it doesn't mean we're supposed to live our lives without regard to what being, living a good witness in front of people. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when I care more about what other people think of me than I do what God thinks of me. Because remember, He's called us to leave our nets and follow Him. Part of what constitutes our nets is our identity. They were fishermen. And He wanted to transform them from being fishermen to being something else. But He couldn't transform them until they were willing to let go of how they saw themselves, which was they were fishermen. In some cases what we're trying to hold on to is a poor self-image because that becomes an excuse for not growing. In some cases, we're trying to hold on to this wonderful, great self-image. I can do all things through me. (laughs) I'm very confident in what I can do. And I've had God had to work on me to get both of those out of me, and I'm sure they're not fully gone yet. But the point is, in order to follow Him, I've got to be willing to let go of what was my identity, how I saw myself, where my treasure and value was. Because if I'm holding on to those, those become more important to me than how He sees me. And then we saw that the real root of that is in fear. And we're not going to go back through all of that, but it's the fear of what People think, I need their approval more than I need God's approval. Proverbs calls that the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says the fear of man brings a snare. That's a trap. Satan's trap is for you to be more concerned of what other people think of you than what God thinks of you. That's a snare of Satan. And snares are to keep you where you are so that you won't follow him. And these are all things that we've looked at before. Then we saw that the answer to that is to fear God over man. We saw that Romans 8.31 says, "What What can man do to us? If God's for us, who can be against us? We saw Psalm 118 verse 6 says, God is on my side. What can man do to me? We saw Psalm 112, the powerful Psalm 112, which talks about the value, the treasure, the benefits of fearing God and not fearing man. And we saw Psalm 51 where it says, God says, speaking to us, says, I'm your comforter. I'm your redeemer. I'm your deliverer. I'm the one who's put breath in you. Why are you afraid of mere man when I am the one who's with you and protecting you? And that's kind of where we left off. I want to pick up today and show you some examples. One of the wonderful things about the Bible in terms of how it teaches us is that it not only gives us principles, but it gives us examples not hypothetical examples, but out of real people's lives. 
It shows us real mistakes that real people made. It shows us real victories that real people won. And out of looking at those examples, we can learn some things and apply them in our lives so they're not just abstract principles out there somewhere. So we're going to start out by looking at two examples that aren't examples of men that, that, that these are examples of men that feared people more than they reverenced or feared God. And understand when I talk about fearing God, we mean reverencing God, respecting Him, treasuring Him, valuing Him above everything else. So let's go quickly to Exodus 32. Very familiar story. In fact, there's dramatic contrast here in Exodus of two men, two leaders, Moses and Aaron, brothers, same family, raised the same way, yet they ended up in a very different position. And of course the background here is that Moses has been called to lead them out of Egypt. And it's interesting because Moses, when God's calling Moses and saying, I've called you to go deliver my people, he says, well, who am I? I can't speak very well. And God, first of all, answers by saying, as He answers everybody that says, who am I? He says, it's not you that I'm relying on. I will be with you. And then and he, pres- he performs several miracles with Moses to prove to him that he's going to be with him in what he can do. And he said, show these miracles to the elders of Egypt and they'll know that I'm with you. But then he pushes God one step further. He said, well, you know I don't speak well, which is not the truth, because if you look in Hebrews 11, it says he was mighty in word and in deed. So he's now giving God excuses. God doesn't take excuses. So God says, all right, your brother Aaron's on his way to find you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'll speak to you, and you'll speak to your brother, and he'll speak to the people. That wasn't God's original plan. God's original plan was that Moses hear from God and Moses speak to the people. So because Moses backed away from what God was calling him to do, it gave an opening in there which is going to become critical for what's going to happen to Israel. So the choices we make when we know better... See, Moses knew better at that point. The choices we make have an effect not only on us but on other people. So we're going to pick up here now because now what's happened is the children of Israel have been delivered. They've gone through the the Red Sea. They're now out in the wilderness. And God has called Moses up on Mount Sinai because he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. In fact, he does do that. But while they're up on Mount Sinai, while their leader is up in God's presence, something else is going on down in the valley. Remember we talked about the valley of the dry bones? Usually nothing good happens in the valley. And so here's an example of that. So what's going on here is that the people got very anxious because they couldn't see Moses. He was up there for 40 days. So they go to the next in charge and they say to him that we cannot find Moses. We don't see Moses. Come make for us gods that we may go before them. And for this day, the man who, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And so Aaron gives them instructions on how to make a golden calf. And they take the jewelry and the gold and the silver that the women of Egypt gave them when they left, and they were given to them, God ordained them to give them these, these wonderful riches and jewels because they were going to be the building materials for the tabernacle that God was giving instructions for up on the mountain. So the, 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 the riches that were, had been given to them were so they could take them and use them to worship God. And now instead they were taking them and making a golden idol out of that, breaking the first commandment that was on those tablets that were being given to Moses at the top of the mountain. And God speaks to the leader. God speaks to him while he was in God's presence and says, you got a problem down in the camp. They're doing stuff they shouldn't be doing. Go down and see what they're doing and deal with that. 
So Moses comes down from the bottom of the mountain, and of course there's an orgy going on. They built this golden calf. They've melted down the, the gold. They worship, worship, are worshiping this golden calf. They're calling it Elohim, which is a name for God, saying this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. So they were instead of worshiping the true and living God, they were making it an image of God and worshiping that God, not calling him Baal. They weren't trying to worship Satan or Baal or some demonic God. They were trying to worship God in an image they made. And that's a danger we have today, is to make our own image of God. None of us would knowingly worship Satan, but what we would do is we would make our own image of of God and make him who we think he ought to be for us. That's going on in the church today. When people write books and form churches and say, well, there can't be a hell, even though the Bible and Jesus in the Bible says there is. We're going to talk about that, what hell is like coming up, not today. The Word of God says there's a hell, but there's teachers out there saying there's no hell. Why? Because God is so loving, He would never do that. That's making an image of God for ourselves and worshiping that God, not Satan, but calling Him Jehovah God, but we've made Him into who we want Him to be instead of who He says He is. That's idolatry. It's idolatry. And the book of Samuel says it's his theme as witchcraft. But it's done in the name of the Lord. It's the done in the name of Jesus. And there's churches being organized, books being written around these things that are making God into who we want Him to be instead of who He says He is. Well, that's not our purpose today. But that's what was going on. So Moses comes down the mountain, and here's what, there's a day of accounting. We're going to pick up this story here in, um, in uh, chapter, verse 19. So as soon as he, that's Moses, came near, he saw the calf and the dancing. They were throwing a party, an orgy. So Moses' anger became hot. He cast down the tablets. These were the tablets of stone that God had personally, with his finger, written the Ten Commandments, broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made, burned it in fire, ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. I think he's pretty upset. Now he's going to talk to to Aaron. And Moses said to Aaron, why did this, what did this people do to you that you have brought uh, such a great sin upon them? Notice whom he holds accountable here. He holds accountable the man that he left in charge. And he's saying, what did you let the people do to you that you would bring this great sin upon them? So Aaron said, don't let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know this, people. You know how they're set. Now, he's come. this sounds something familiar. I think I've heard this excuse back in Genesis 3. God came to Adam and said, I want an accounting here of what's happened here. And Adam says, I don't know. I just know it's not me. It's the woman you gave me. So there are only three of us here. There's you, her, and me. I just know it's not me. And men have been doing that ever since. Praise God, not every man. We've got men here that don't do that. But here you've got a man again saying, it's their fault. What could I do? Well, he could have been a leader. That's what he could have done. Don't let the anger of my Lord become hot. Notice he's only concerned about himself here. You know the people that they're set on evil. Well, Moses did know the people. Moses had had to deal with them already quite a few times. This interesting thing is that when the, when the people put pressure on Moses, I saw this yesterday and going back over, when the people put pressure on Moses, what did Moses do? He went to God. Because we're human. 
And those people put pressure on him. Sometimes he was at a point where he says, I don't know if I can handle anymore. But what he did is instead of giving in to them, he went to God. Because he saw himself in that position as serving God, representing God to the people. Therefore, when the people acted up, he went to God for the strength and for the wisdom of what to do. He didn't react to the people. Why? Because he respected and reverenced God more than he did what the people thought of him. And they played on him. Even his own brother, Aaron, and his sister, Miriam, played on him. They said to him, who are you to think that God only speaks to you? He speaks to us also. They were attacking his character. Families will do that sometimes. They know you. And they were saying things about him, but Moses didn't react to what they said. Instead, Moses stepped back and started praying for them. And when he did that, God came down at the door of the tent. And God dealt with his critics. God dealt with those that were, that were disparaging him. Moses interceded for those that were attacking him. Why? Because Moses didn't need their approval. Moses wasn't seeking their favor and their approval. He was more concerned with God's favor and God's approval. And no matter what the people did, God was there for him. So his foundation, his security, his sense of well-being wasn't shaken when the people shook. Just like Jesus wasn't. One day he's got a crowd of thousands around him. He preaches a difficult message. John chapter 6. He says, in order to be my disciple, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood. And all the people that were following him for the food they got and for the blessings they got said, I feel led to go in another direction today. God's calling me over to this place. And he looked around. I mean, one day he cleaned his whole church out. Basically. And there's only people left as staff. And he turns to the seven and says, are you going too? And Peter's answer kind of implies they've been thinking about it. Because he says, we don't know where else to go. <laughs> Jesus wasn't shaken by that. Why? Because he wasn't relying on what the people thought of him for his security. Where did he go for his security? When they were all sleeping, he was on the mountaintop with his father because it was his father's approval his father's wisdom his father's direction his father's relationship that gave him the strength that gave him the wisdom that was his source and so here Moses comes down and Aaron's reaction Aaron's response is so insightful look at this listen to these words Verse 22, don't let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. That's what they told him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it in this fire, and this calf came out. I love it. I don't know how it happened. But isn't that what happens when you start making excuses? I just know, I'm not responsible. They came to me and they put pressure. You know this, people. They put pressure on me. So I, I did what they wanted. I took their gold and we threw it in the fire. A calf came out. I don't know how it happened. Oh, God's so patient with us. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, when Moses saw the people were unrestrained, look at this, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame 
among their enemies. When Moses saw the people, they were unrestrained, for Aaron had failed as a leader because he feared the people more than he feared God. And because he feared the people more than he feared God, he was failed as a leader to protect the people who were going to turn on him anyway. In ministry, our calling is to serve the Lord, not serve the people. Now listen to me carefully. If we'll serve the Lord, He'll serve the people through us. But if we serve the people first, then the Lord can't serve them through us because we're in His way. That can happen in families. You know, parents, we can get in God's way. It's, it's, it's human instinct to want to do for our kids whatever we can do for them. But there comes an age you've got to put them in God's hands. You pray, and they've got to have their own encounter with God. Not through you, but directly. And I know when God's dealt with me about that, He said this because you don't trust me. That I'll do with them what I've done with you. The fear of man is a snare, especially when you're in any kind of leadership. And if you're a father, if you're a parent, you're in a leadership. One of the things that's rampant in the world today is a lack of discipline in homes. I'm not talking about child abuse. I'm talking about discipline, godly discipline. And in many cases, it's because the parents are trying to get the approval of the children more than the approval of God who put them in a position of responsibility. I had occasion to meet with a, with a, uh, a group of uh, representatives of school board and some teachers and principals a while ago from a community. And the biggest challenge they have is not with the kids, it's with the parents. Because the parents, there's two groups of parents. One group that thinks they need to be friends with their kids. Nothing wrong with being friendly and loving and having fun with them, but you've been given the responsibility from God to train them up in the way that they should go. That's a responsibility given by God to fathers and to mothers. That's our first responsibility, and to love them. But when we need our children's approval back more than we need to obey God, things are out of order and the children begin to rule the house, not the parents. And we live in a society that doesn't understand that because the devil presents one extreme, which is child abuse, and that's very real and it's demonic. But that's not the whole picture. He presents that image so strongly that we become afraid to do what is right and what is godly, which is to, be, to, to, to administer discipline in the home and order in the home. But it's the fear of our children not afraid of what they're going to do to us. It's afraid of losing their approval. Well, they may not like me. My job isn't to make them like me. In fact, I discovered that when I do what I'm supposed to do, they love you even all the more. Because you're not being selfish. You're putting their interest ahead of your interests. See, when we love the approval of men more than God, it's basically being selfish. And that's what Aaron was. Aaron was selfish. Notice his first reactions. Don't get mad at me. He was all concerned of what was going to happen to him out of this situation. Let's look at another example. Let's go over to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. See, but I want you to see here while you're turning that Aaron's failure affected a whole group of people. First Samuel. 
1 Samuel 15. Now, what's happened here is God has... The people of Israel, God's original plan was that He would be their king. And one of the principles of the Bible is that the righteousness of the king determines the well-being of the people. Now, think about that. God wanted to be their king. How righteous is He? How blessed would they have been? But they wanted to be like every other nation who had a man that they could see as their king. And so God, Samuel goes to God and says, they want a man, he says, give it to him. See, sometimes God will give you what you want, even though it's not his will. You push him hard enough, he'll let you have what you want. He warned them what it was going to cost them. They're going to tax you. They're going to take your, your, your children and your men and put them into the military. They're going to take your, your daughters. Oh, is this going to cost you something to be like everybody else? It, it still does, by the way. So the man God chose was a man named Saul. Not Saul the Old, New Testament, Saul the Old Testament. Chose him to be king. And the testimony, he was the least of all. He was tall, but he was the least. He was in the smallest tribe. He was least in his family. Was, you know, God just chose him and anointed him to be king. And here God instructs him to destroy Agag and all the Amalekites because of how they treated Israel earlier. God's instruction to the king was to destroy everything that moved. What Saul did is he destroyed all of the soldiers and he left the king alive and he destroyed all the livestock except the good ones. All right? Samuel, the prophet, isn't there at the time. He's back home and during the night God wakes him up and tells him what Saul's done. With that background, we're going to pick up with the story now. We'll pick up in uh, verse 24. What's happened is he comes, Saul comes, Samuel comes back and says, You did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And Saul says to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. That's in verse 20. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, Agag the king of, the, of Am, 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 Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder and the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to the sacrifice. Notice the people did it. The people took it. The people took them. So he's blaming what happened on the people he's responsible for leading. But the people took the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgad. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Stop here a second, because that verse is often quoted for the wrong purposes. You'll hear that verse quoted, where the Lord delights more in, 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 uh, uh, in, in sacrifices than in burnt offerings. And, and, he, he, and what we people use that to teach. God would rather have you, have, have you uh, obey than have to make a sacrifice to make up for it. And that's not what he's talking about here. Because what's happened here is Saul is justifying what the people have done by saying, well, we've, we've, we've kept the best, God, the best of the sheep and the oxen. We've kept so that we can offer them to you as a burnt sacrifice. That isn't what God told him to do. And what Samuel's saying is, God would rather have you just simply obey him than do what you think is good for him. Because what they were doing is something they were offering to him that they were presenting as good, although we really know in reality it was an excuse. They're trying to con God. They're trying to con God by giving him excuses. That's what an excuse is. It's a con job. (laughs) 
Now, if we step on some of your toes, that's okay. They'll heal. See, we only do have to do that when we're not dealing in truth. And Saul does not want to face the truth here. So what he's saying here, what Samuel is saying to him, is it's better to simply do what God said to do than to do something that you think you're going to do for God that He didn't tell you to do. That's what he's talking about here. That's what the sacrifice and the burnt offering are about here. He's not talking about God would rather you have you obey Him the first time than go through some sacrifice later on, as true as that may be. For rebellion, I quoted this earlier, is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry because you've rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. Now we're going to get to look into Saul's heart here. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. See, just because somebody admitted their sin doesn't mean they've repented. I, I learned as a child, I had siblings that weren't... I was the oldest. And we kind of had a blended family. So our mother was, I, my, was my mother. So I'd studied her for my whole life. And I figured ways around. I knew when to talk about something. I knew when not to something about something. And I learned with her early on the best way was to come to her and tell her what I did first before she found it out. That did two things. That made me look good. And I was already thinking as a lawyer. And I got to couch. I got to phrase the incident to her instead of her hearing it from one of my brothers or finding it out for herself. So I could describe it the way I wanted it described, plus get credit for doing it on the hope that that would somehow lessen the punishment. And I found out it worked a lot of times. And that's often what we do with God. God, I've sinned. And that's what Saul's done here. He's, he's sinned. He's admitted he sinned as if somehow that's now going to make everything right. Now, we need to confess our sins. I know there's a teaching out there today that you don't need to confess your sins. That is 100% unscriptural. Then you've got to take the Gospels and throw them out because Jesus talks about, He tells parables about it. You've got to take the whole first book of First John and throw it out and that's what some people are doing. They're telling you that it doesn't apply to the church. Why is it in there? Starts out, my beloved. Getting quiet, but I'm telling you there's deceptive teaching out there today. There's deceptive teaching out there today. And I'll probably talk more about this later on. But here you've got a man who's... I lost track of where I was going there. I got so off on that. This is... It is such danger because it's deceiving... It's going to deceive many in the church. I better go look at my notes. <laughs> but we want to know the truth. I don't want to have that day occur and find out I was wrong. Where were we? Oh, all right. Saul, look into Saul's heart. I've sinned and I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I, look at this, look at this, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Say, so, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not, but you may be a parent. God's put you in some place of influence. There's somebody God's called you to influence. And the question is, are they influencing you? Or is God through you influencing them? Because it's going one way or the other. Notice what Saul says there. He says, the reason I disobeyed the commandment of the Lord. So he knew God's commandment. And your words was because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now look at this. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. So it looks good on the outside. He's acknowledged what he's done. He's faced why he did it. 
but he hasn't changed inside. We'll see that in just a second. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Verse 26. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Samuel turned around to go away. Saul seized the edge of his, uh, edge of his robe, and it tore. And so Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie, nor he will not rely or relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then, Saul talks in here, I have sinned, now look what he's concerned about, yet please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel in return with me that I may worship the Lord our God. In other words, the guy's blown it. He's disobeyed God. He's acknowledged that he disobeyed him and acknowledged he knew he was going to disobey him and he understands why he disobeyed him because he feared what the people thought of him. He treasured, valued what the people thought of him more than God. So he understands why he did it. And now all he's concerned about is don't tell them what I've done because I might not look good in their eyes. He's still treasuring what they think of him, even in the middle of his repentance, in the middle of his supposed repentance, his supposing getting things right, he's still more concerned what people think of him than God. Now contrast that with King David, who is his replacement. When he commits two sins, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then he has his, her husband murdered to cover it up. When he's confronted with that sin, what does he say? I have sinned against my God. All he cared about at that point was what his God thought of him, not what the people thought of him. And so here we see the snare of fearing people. By fearing them, it doesn't mean I'm afraid of what they're going to do. It means I vow, they, what they think of me Losing, it's the fear of losing their respect, losing their attention, losing their approval. It's the fear of losing that as opposed to what God thinks of me. And Proverbs 29, 25 says it's a snare. It's a snare. All right, let's look at some good examples. I think it's about time we have some good examples. Let's go to Hebrews chapter... Um, Let's go to Exodus chapter, we're near Exodus. Let's go to Exodus chapter 1. Children of Israel, we're going back now. We're, we're, We're rewinding. Children of Israel are still in bondage. They've, they haven't even cried out for deliverance yet. And they've become more than the, than mightier than the, the Egyptian people. And the king of the pharaohs decides to to put them into bondage. But he's heard, we've talked about this before, he's heard that there's going to be a deliverer. Verse 15, So the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one of them was Shifra, and the name of the other was Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it's a son, then you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but they saved the male children. Now you've got the king calling these Hebrew midwives into the palace and commanding them to execute Hebrew males when they're born. And it says, because they feared God, they reverenced God higher than the king and what he could do to them, they didn't obey the king, they obeyed God. And my brothers and sisters, we may come to the point where we have to make that choice. In fact, those opportunities are already out there on the horizon. Where we have to choose whether we're going to obey God or we're going to obey what the government tells us to do. Are we prepared for the consequences? So the king, verse 18, called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're lively, that means they're strong, and they give birth before the midwives can come. Therefore, 
In other words, they're not soft like your Egyptian women. They're strong. They're mighty. They give birth in the field. We don't get there in time. So by the time we get there, we don't know what happened to the child. Look at verse 20. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied, multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that He provided households for them. You put God first, and God will put you first. And guess who wins in that deal? Let's go to Hebrews 11. It's the same story further down the road, but we're going to look at the version, the account of it in Hebrews. It's a little briefer and to the point. Let's go to verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. Same scene we just read in Exodus 1. Because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. So his parents kept him alive because the king had ordered. What happened is when the midwives fared to do that, the king orders every male child to be executed and they hid their son. Why? Because they, 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 what God said to do was more important to them than what Pharaoh said to do. And they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So he looked to... Here's, he's faced with the choice between the, what the riches of Egypt... And he was trained to be Pharaoh's replacement. What the riches of the world, the highest position of the world, had to offer him or to be reproached with his people. Because obviously Christ wasn't there, but when we talk about the reproach of Christ, it's the reproach for Christ's sake. It's a choice to make between what the world could give him or, or being identified with his people and with his fought with God and what, the, what was going to come as a result of that. And he chose to be identified with God, the people of God, who was his heritage, than to choose to be identified with Pharaoh and all the riches. Remember we talked about that when we, part of leaving and letting go is letting go of the things of this world? doesn't mean you can't have them. It means they can't have you. They can't control what you do. They can't stop you obeying God. That can't become a factor in, well, I, I don't know if we can do this. I can't afford to do this. I might lose my job if I do that. And so Moses made that choice. He let go of the things of Egypt and chose instead to be identified with the things of God, even though it meant reproach and losing all that he had. But why did he do that? Because he was looking forward to the reward. Verse 27, this is where we're getting to. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That's God. By faith he kept the Passover, the sprinkling of the blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So we see here Moses was able to leave Pharaoh's court and all the riches and all the future and destiny that Pharaoh had for him. He could leave those and go through all that he went through because he treasured and valued what God thought of him more than what Pharaoh thought of him and the people thought of him. And that's the choice we have. And we, we, we build that in. Now turn with me to, uh, well, let me give a couple of more examples. We don't have to turn there yet. I turn there. Uh, Daniel's full, got two good examples in there. You've got the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar has an image of him built, a golden image. And says, there, whenever you hear the instruments, you're to bow down and worship him. Well, they can't do that because Jehovah's their God. They can't worship other gods. So when everybody else is bowing down, they were standing up. And guess what? When everybody's bowing, you're standing, you're noticeable. 
you stand out. That's why Jesus said, when you follow me, you will be persecuted. Somebody's not going to like you because you'll stand out. Are we standing out today? Is the church standing up when everybody else is bowing down? So they were brought, you know the story, they were brought before Nebuchadnezzar and he gave them another chance. And they said, I don't, you know, we can't be careful. And if it's interesting to go back and read, we can't be careful. In other words, it doesn't matter what you say. We can't bow because our God said we can't bow. So I don't care basically what you say or what you do to us. And they said, you know, our God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, that made Nebuchadnezzar really angry now. Because he, he was so angry because he couldn't get them to be afraid of him. He ruled by fear. Satan rules by fear. He ruled by fear. And when that fear would not move them or touch them, he got so angry because he had nothing else to call upon to get them to do what he wanted to do but fear. See, when you put God first, when you fear Him, you won't fear other things. And you won't fear people. We saw that in Psalm 112. We saw that in, Psalm, in Isaiah 51. When you reverence God, you won't fear anything else or anybody else. Then we've got Daniel. Now we've got a different king, Darius. And there are some of Daniel's compatriots that are jealous of him. So they figure a way they're going to get him. So they talk King Darius into passing a law that for 30 days that they can't worship anybody else but him. And so Darius gullibly signs this thing. And under their traditions of the time, it could never be changed. And of course, they're so excited because they go to see what Daniel's going to do. It's so neat the way it's written because it says Dan, he normally prayed three times a day with his window open. He didn't change what he did at all. He didn't hide what he was doing. He left the window open and he prayed three times a day. And they go, of course, they're spying him. They go tell the king. The king is so upset now because now he realizes he's been tricked, but he can't change it. And the neat thing is, as he brings Daniel in, he apologizes. He throws Daniel in the lion's den. And the neat thing is, that night Daniel slept in the lion's den and the king was up all night worrying. In each of these cases, of course, with the three Hebrew children, they're thrown in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and says, how many do we throw in? I said, sir, we threw three people in. He says, I thought so. He says, but I see a fourth man in there. There's a classic sermon by Oral Roberts called The Fourth Man. He says, he looks like he must be the Son of God. When they bring them out, not only are they not burned, their clothes aren't burned, don't smell of smoke, their hair isn't singed, but the guys that threw them in burned up. In their case, and then in Daniel's case, at the end the king says, I don't know who this God is they're serving, but He's the true God. When we won't bow, our God is exalted through our, la- our, our, our refusal to bow. But when we bow, God cannot be exalted through us. But you'll bow if you fear what they can do to you more than you reverence the God who saved you, the God who comforts you, the God who gives you breath, the God who's formed you, who has a purpose for you, the God who loves you, who has a destiny for you, the God who's protected you, the God who saves you. The church in the early first century went through two attacks of Satan. The first attack was persecution. Saul was one of those to persecute the church. And all it did was made the church stronger. Separated those who were Christians because they served God from those who were Christians because it was fashionable or they were going to get something out of it. Because you see, when you're not getting what you bargained for, you leave. 
And I'm very concerned that we've raised in this generation, especially in this part of the world, a church that serves God for what we get out of it, not because of who He is. The church so much has lost sight of who He is. That's why we, our worship isn't true worship in many cases, because we don't have a heart experience with Him, a reverence for Him. Worship comes out of a reverence. The word worship comes from an English word, worth, W-R-O-R-T-H, ship. It comes from a word that means to recognize someone else has a greater worth than you. And so worship has to come out of the heart of a reverence for who this God is that's created us and preserves us and protects us and redeems us. A love for Him because of who He is. But that persecution strengthened the church. Satan got wise and the next generation, he legalized the church and the church got watered down. There were no challenges to their faith. There was no costs for being a Christian. It was popular. And so the church became watered down and he discovered the technique that works the best against the church. And that's what he's been working in this generation. But I believe the time is short. Satan knows his time is short. And I believe that there are challenges coming. They're right on the horizon now where you and I are going to have to make a choice. Because what Moses did when he got down and after he finished chastising Aaron, he came out among the people and he drew a line in the sand. He says, tell me this, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve God? Or are you going to serve these other gods? And the people that decided to serve God crossed the line. The people that didn't opened up and the leaders were swallowed up. Who are you serving? You're serving who your treasure is. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Back in Matthew, we saw Jesus chose them just as he chose you and me. And he chose us by saying, you, 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 come follow me. In order to follow him, I've got to let everything else go as important in my life and just follow him. Are you prepared to do that? Next time what we're going to talk about is the me of follow. Because what he called us to do was to follow him, not join a religion. He called us to follow him, not join a cause, not to adhere to certain beliefs. They may be all part of it, but what he called us to do was to leave where we were and simply follow Him. In other words, He called us into a personal relationship, one-on-one, with Him. And so much of the church today is out trying to do His work, but not having a relationship with Him. He didn't call us to do His work. That will be part of what we do but he called us into a personal, loving relationship, one-on-one with him. And the church today is missing that drastically. And we'll pick up with this next time. Let's pray. Father, we've seen today from your word one of the most important issues of life for us. May your Spirit help us to examine our own hearts, not just sitting here in a blue chair in this atmosphere right now, but throughout the week, as we face situations and opportunities and 
we see our own reactions. May the precious Holy Spirit shine his light into our lives that we may see where we really are. We thank you, Father, for your graciousness and your patience and your mercy and your long-suffering. We want to change and we want to grow. And we want to become a people of God that will go where you say to go, do what you say to do, when you say go, and how you say do. That will not be like Saul or like Moses or like, or, or like Aaron who will be so influenced about what people around us think that will not obey the voice of the Lord our God who loves us so much. You know where we are today. Open our eyes to face where we are and then guide us and lead us that we may make the choices that bring us to that place of consecration to which you have called us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name.